Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Pleasure to be speaking to you today, whether you're watching this at our Oasis site, our Clarendon Centre site, our Hove site, our Shoreham site, or are watching this online. We're in the third week of our The Promise Endures series, which is all about how God's faithfulness is interwoven in the lives of various characters in the Old Testament book of Genesis. And we're up to chapter 26. That's the passage that we've just heard. And it concerns the life of Isaac. Now, Isaac is someone, in many ways, he's a bit of an in-between character. If you know a little bit about the Bible, if someone suggested the name Isaac to you, you might think of the story. The most famous story he's a part of really is to do with him being sacrificed by Abraham. Really, when we think of Isaac, his association with Abraham is what really what comes to mind. Abraham was Isaac's father. And in many ways, there's not really much about Isaac in his own right. And in fact, this chapter that we're going to be focused on in today's message and next week as well is really the only part of the Bible that focuses on the events of Isaac's life before it quickly moves on to talk about his children. So he's a bit of an in-between character. And what we see in this passage is even the things that he does is actually 
sort of repetition to things that have happened to his father, Abraham, who we focused on in our previous Genesis series. These are the things that already happened. So in many ways, Isaac's life is really kind of overshadowed by his father, Abraham. What's that like? I wonder if you have experienced that in your life, being overshadowed by someone, maybe a dominant parent or a sibling. Maybe when you went to school, uh, your older sibling had been to that school first and then you come into the school and the teachers associate you with, oh, you're so-and-so's brother or so-and-so's sister. And you're like, I'm my own person, but they only see you in that context. We can be overshadowed or unhelpfully connected to a sibling. And it happens with parents as well. And it can be sometimes for positive and negative uh, reasons. Maybe uh, our our parents have been particularly uh, successful in a certain way. And we feel as their children, we live under their shadow a little bit. I remember growing up uh, in the 90s when uh, Man United were the big football team. I don't know what happened to them these days. I never hear so much about them. Um, but they signed a player called uh, Jordi Cruyff, uh, whose dad was Johan Cruyff. Now, Johan Cruyff is arguably one of the greatest players of all time. And I remember as a kid when they signed Jordi Cruyff, he didn't have Cruyff's name on the back of his shirt. Most players would have their surname. He actually had Jordi. And it was kind of sort of suggesting that he, d- he wanted to disassociate himself from his dad because his dad was this such amazing player he could never compare and he wanted to be regarded in his own right. Other players more recently often do that as well, use their first name rather than their surname. Uh, Delhi Ali, I think, it would be an example of one. He's sort of, and it's probably in that case more for negative reasons, wants to break an association with uh, parts of his family in that sense. So it can be for positive or negative reasons that maybe in our experience as well, we feel overshadowed by a parent. And that can be really hard. That is almost always really hard if we feel as children overshadowed by a parent and perhaps this is what Isaac feels like. Sometimes the circumstances of our parents dictate our lives and make life difficult and that is a factor in Isaac's life that we see in this chapter 26. And also what can happen is sometimes the faults and the weaknesses of parents can be passed on to their children. I don't know if you've experienced that in either way, as a parent or as a child. And that's also in this passage that we've just heard. Isaac follows on in the same pattern of sinful behaviour that Abraham has done before him. So all of this is in Isaac's story. So perhaps you are resonate with that theme already. We're also seeing in this passage that Isaac goes through a very difficult season and also a season of great blessing, but also in the midst of his failure. And what we see is that God is faithful. God is good. God speaks to him. God works. And maybe you're in a place that you're very aware of the difficulty in your life right now, or you're very aware of the way that you fail. Well, this chapter is a chapter about God's goodness to people just like that. And so I hope it's of great encouragement to you in terms of what I have to say today. 
Let's look at the passage. It might be helpful to have the passage open before you if you can. It's Genesis 26. In those first five verses there, it sort of brings us up to speed with what is going on in Isaac's life. Now we have to remember that in the first part of the book of Genesis, things got very bad indeed, very dark situations much of the time. And then out of that, God speaks to this man called Abraham and says, you're going to be a blessing and I'm going to bless you. And through you and through your family, God says, I'm going to bless the whole world. And that really is the story of the whole Bible, God and his people and God bringing the blessing. Now, part of that promise Part of that covenant that was made to Abraham is about uh, the land. He said, your family is going to be blessed. I'm going to give you this land. And so in these first five verses of chapter 26, when it's talking about where he's moving to, you have to make note every time it's talking about some geography, especially in these passages in Genesis, it's significant. What happens is Isaac moves from one place to another. Why? Well, because there's a famine, a famine. Now, remember, Isaac, like Abraham before him, he doesn't have a settled place yet. He's a sort of nomadic herdsman. He lives off the land. And so when there's a famine, what you've got to understand that essentially that's like a death sentence. So naturally... Isaac is forced to move. He's like, there's no, nothing can grow here. I have to find somewhere else where crops are going to grow. And so it seems like what he's doing, he's heading towards Egypt. If you know anything about Egypt, you'll know that the river Nile runs through Egypt. And because of the Nile, it's more likely to be more resistant in times of the lack of rainfall. So he's making a decision here that's an understandable decision. But God interrupts him. We see that here. God says, no, no, stop. Stop your traveling. Don't go down to Egypt. Because if you did that, you would be moving away from the promise that I have over your life and your family's life. And what we see in this passage is that the covenant is reiterated. Now, again, if you were with us with our Abraham series, or you know that part of the Bible, you notice that the language that God uses to speak to Isaac is the same. It's the same language as he used to speak to Abraham about the promise of blessing. Verse two there, and the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I'll be with you and will bless you to you and your offspring. I will give all these lands And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So here we have the same phrases, the same promises, the the same enduring promise. If Isaac is in any doubt whether the blessing that was given to his father, Abraham, is going to be passed on to him. God just makes it explicitly clear by reiterating this covenant promise. Now, as we move into verses 6 to 11, Isaac heeds this. He doesn't go to Egypt. He stays in this land, but it's still a land that he's not familiar with and he's not settled there. And it's the land of the Philistines. 
And what we have in this section is again a passage that will sound familiar to you if you followed with us when we're looking at the life of Abraham. Because what happens is Isaac plays this deceptive trick where he pretends that his wife, Rebecca, who we learned about two weeks ago, he says, no, let's just say that you're my sister because if you're my wife, someone is going to kill me in order to marry you. So he puts his wife on the line, in a sense, in a place of danger in order to save his own skin. It's a horrendous, horrible thing to do. But it's something that Abraham, his father, did before him. In Genesis 12, when Abraham's in Egypt, he did this. In Genesis 20, Abraham did this again. And in that passage uh, in Genesis 20, it's also to do with uh, someone called Abimelech, who was the king of the Philistines. Now, it's likely, even though it's the same name here, that it's actually a subsequent king, a, a son or a grandson of the Abimelech in Abraham's time. That wouldn't be unusual for them to carry the same name. But Isaac is repeating this same pattern of sinful behavior. And let's underline now, like we underlined then, the manner of his sin is not incidental. Because we just heard God has spoken to Isaac and said, it's through your family, through your offspring, that God's blessing is going to come to you. And so for Isaac, his wife is vitally important to that. And yet here he is essentially putting his wife on the line, sacrificing her to save his own skin. It's not just an incidental bit of selfishness. It's actually contrary to the plan of, for God of his life and everything that God has spoken to him. There's a little sidebar on this point. Often when people think about the Bible, especially the Old Testament, the criticism is often leveled that it describes a very patriarchal society where the women are mistreated and treated as property. And people might point to this uh, story as an example of that. And I would say, yeah, it is showing that. But if you understand the context, you understand the story, you understand that in doing this, in treating his wife in this way and not caring for her, God is putting this in the Bible to hold up. This is a bad example. The Bible is not condoning this. It's describing something that's horrendously wrong. So don't make that mistake thinking, oh, it's in the Bible. No, no, it's holding up a bad example. And the thing is, in this instance, even Abimelech, even he, he's not a recipient of the promise, but even Abimelech realizes that there's a significance to this family. And he's probably heard the story of Abraham and realizes the seriousness of this situation because when he discovers that they are, actually are married, he says, whoa, whoa, to mess with this family, that's a death sentence. No one go near this family because if you mess things up, it's almost like you're under judgment. He even recognizes that. The manner in which he calls this out is uh, just sort of an interesting uh, note in and of itself. And it just... It's a sort of um, shows really the, the, something of the craft of uh, the storytelling of Genesis, because in this passage here, it talks about how Abimelech, this king, sees Isaac and Rebekah laughing together. It's this sort of lovely uh, tender moment, but it's also a bit of a play on words. 
<laughs> you may remember when Isaac was born, Isaac name, Isaac's name means he laughs. And so when it says that he saw them, Abimelech saw them laughing together, it's like Abimelech is seeing Isaac for who he is. Isaac has made this deception about their situation, but Abimelech gets this window and sees who he is. He's laughing. He's being himself. And that exposes that actually they are married and what is really going on. How does God respond then? So Isaac gets found out. And in verse 12 to 16, we see what happens next. How does God respond? Isaac has done this really terrible thing. And in the very next verse, it says that Isaac's blessed. Isaac gets blessed. God shows grace to Isaac despite his sin. You see, we often use these words like grace and mercy. Now, mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. We're let off the hook. But grace is even greater than that because grace is when we get the opposite of what we deserve. And Isaac's life here is an example of that because Isaac's done something horrendously wrong. He deserves to be punished for that, but yet he gets the opposite of that. He gets blessed by God. And the Bible uses language here that really labours the point. Verse 12, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. And he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. In this instance here, the Bible doesn't seem to be embarrassed to draw a connection between God's blessing and material wealth. Sometimes we, we struggle with this. Sometimes we have a bit of an issue with this and not sure how to think about it. For some, yeah, okay, yeah, God bless, God, when God blesses me, that's, I can see that in financial provision. But others would say, well, well, let's get a bit nervous when we associate too closely God's blessing with financial wealth. We can go off track on that and say, well, no, actually, it's more spiritual to have very little. You know, Jesus had nothing. He carried on his ministry and was reliant on others. And so maybe we present the idea that poverty is, is more spiritual. Well, I want to say at this point, I really think from reading the scripture that seasons of lack and seasons of plenty are both parts of normal Christian life. You know, there's some... That you're watching this right now and you, you, are, you are wealthy. You are comfortable financially. But you would also, if someone asked you about your life story, talk about how there are other seasons in your life where you had very, very little and things were very, very tough. Others, and I've spoken to several, even in the last year or so, who would say, actually, I used to have so much in terms of wealth, in terms of family, in terms of career success and that sort of thing. And then I lost everything. And that, hap that, that happens. The point is, God is a God who is 
works with us and is with us through seasons of lack and through seasons of plenty. We see this in Genesis. You see, Abraham, he basically starts out with nothing and then he goes through his story and then he amasses quite a substantial amount of wealth. But then we get to Isaac here and this chapter starts off, Isaac's facing famine, he's, he's going to die, he's, he's got nothing, he has to go to Egypt, otherwise nothing, everything is going to go. And yet, by this point in the passage, he, he's got blessed, he's got hundredfold. Okay, but then what happens? Jacob, his son, we'll get to that next week, in a couple of weeks time. Jacob, well, he starts off blessed, but in Jacob's lifetime, there also another famine hits and then they have nothing. Jacob's son, Joseph, he starts off in Jacob's house and things are all right, but then he gets chucked in the pit, by, betrayed by his brothers. And so he has nothing. And then what happens? He gets eventually taken to the palace and he's in charge of everything and they have great wealth. And so that family is blessed again. And that's how Genesis ends. But then what happens? Things go bad again for this family, God's people here, and they end up in slavery. And so you have this constant up and down, up and down, mountaintop, valley. God is the God of the top, mountaintop and also of the valley. God is the God of little and of much. And we have to realise that. Philippians chapter 4, Paul lays this out very clearly for us. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christ is all. Christ is in all. Now, why am I laboring this point? I'm laboring this point because I think this is something that we don't, we don't tend to get. We don't get this sometimes. Because when we hit seasons of lack, seasons of famine, seasons of adversity, possibly our initial reaction is to be, where's God? God is, God is not with me right now. I'm finding it difficult to see God because I'm facing lack and that could be financially, that could be relationally, things go bad with our relationships with other people, it could be work, it could be stress and anxiety, it could be grief, bereavement, it's when, when we're criticised or, or, or we suffer ill treatment from others. Sometimes we react like, God, where are you? How could you let this adversity hit me? And we think that God is not with us when we're in the season of famine. And I want to ask you, where did you, where'd you get that from? Where do you get this idea that seasons of famine, God is not with you and is not for you and is not even blessing you? You don't get that from the scripture. Because every single character in the Bible, it seems, there are seasons of plenty and the seasons of lack and God is with them in both. In fact, I would say, if we consider this story, when does Isaac get the biggest blessing. Isaac faces famine at one hand and harvest in another. Where is it that God blesses him most? I actually don't think it is at the end of this passage here in the harvest. Because what is Isaac's life all about? What characterizes his life? It's not his wealth. It's the promise of God over his life. And that comes 
in the famine. That comes in the season of adversity. God speaks to him and reiterates this amazing promise. I'm going to bless you. You are going to be blessed and through you the whole world is going to be blessed. This covenant promise that characterizes his life and actually the whole story of the Bible comes to him in the season of famine. God is the God of the mountaintop and the valley, but sometimes the biggest blessing comes in the valley. We need to understand this is the way that God works. Because the problem is we, we don't see this and we don't expect it. We don't look for it and we don't expect it. But if you want to learn from this passage of the Bible, you'll learn to expect God's blessing. Let me ask you, are you facing right now? Many of you, I know many of you are. You're facing a season of famine. You're facing a season of difficulty, of adversity, whether it's disappointment, whether it's stress, whether it's ill health, whether it's financial lack. Let me ask you the question, what are you expecting from God? Well, I may be expecting, hoping that eventually God will bring me out of this season. Okay, I I don't think that God actually promises that he will just take us out of a a season of famine straight away. Maybe we're thinking, well, I'm not really expecting that much. I'm just, I'm so aware of this disappointment of this season. I'm really not expecting anything of God. What does this passage teach? This passage teaches us that God is the God who blesses us in adversity. And if you know God, you know to expect his favour as much in the valley as the mountaintop, as much in the famine as in the harvest. Psalm 23 says, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. So friends, I'm asking you, why are you not looking for God's blessing right now? We're so focused on the circumstance, we forgot to look for the blessing of God. Christian maturity is to expect God's favour in every season. It looks different, but it is there. How does God bless us? How does God bless us in the famine? He blesses us because we are thrown onto his provision. He blesses us by humbling us in order that we might rely on him. He blesses us through the kindness and the provision of others that often comes to us when we are in lack. He blesses us by using the famine season to change our hearts, to change our character. The Bible says he disciplines those he loves. That is a blessing to us if we receive it as such. He blesses us by preparing our character for the next season. Again, so many of you actually have lived through this and know this. You've been a Christian for a a long time and you know when you look back on your life and you look back on those seasons of lack, you look back on those seasons of famine, you think actually, no, now I understand what God was doing in me that is actually preparing me for the next season. 
That is a faith perspective on our lives. He blesses us, not just by shaping us, but by shaping circumstance. Again, so many of you look back on your life through seasons of famine, when things went wrong, when you lost a job, when things relationally broke down or whatever happened, and you think, why did that happen? I don't, I'm not, I'm not understanding this at the time. But then you look back on it several years later and you realize, oh, wait a minute. God was actually orchestrating circumstance to put me in the place that he wanted me to be in order to walk in this path that I didn't even know anything about. God is the God who blesses in the famine. If we have eyes of faith to see what he is doing, we will be encouraged by it. He blesses us by teaching us to pray in the darkness of the valley. And he blesses us by protecting us and even providing for us miraculously in those seasons as well. If you've been through that and come out the other side, you know that is true. That in the moment you didn't understand where God's blessing was. But as you look back, you read your test. I know your testimony is God was God's faithfulness shone through. And now I understand what God was doing. And that season of famine had purpose. And in that purpose, there is the blessing of God. When everything is going wrong around you, the natural instinct is to think this is terrible. (laughs) The faith instinct is to say, where's the blessing here? What's God doing here? I know my God is a God who blesses in the famine. So where is it? Have eyes of faith to see what God is doing. God blesses in the famine. And he also, he also blesses in the failure. Because uh, Isaac goes through this famine and then he goes into this next part, which is his failure. And we've already seen how does God respond? God responds with blessing. So let me ask you the same question. When you are faced with your failure, when you are aware of the your sinfulness, you've done something wrong, you reflect on your character, you see your flaws, you see the way that you have missed the mark. In that moment, in a lowest of the low kind of moment, what are you expecting of God? And I ask this question because I know many of you think actually in that place, I'm expecting disapproval from God that God's not happy with me, that I better clean up my act. And maybe, well, maybe, maybe God's going to forgive me. Okay, I, I expect God to forgive me, but only reluctantly. Maybe God, that's what, forgiveness, that's what kind of God has to do. So he does it reluctantly. He lets me off the hook. And again, I ask you, where does that come from? Where does that thinking come from? Because it's not from this book. What does this passage teach teach us? Isaac sins spectacularly. He sins in the same way that Abraham, his father, has sinned before him. And God responds by blessing him a hundredfold. And you think, really? How is this possible? How can I expect this from God when I have been such a failure? 
Let me spell it out to you. G-R-A-C-E. It is grace. It is the grace of God who gives us not just what we deserve, but the blessing that we don't deserve. And if you do not expect that from God, you do not understand yet that God is a God of grace. The God of the Bible, he blesses through adversity. He blesses despite sin, amidst the famine and amidst the failure. If your expectations on God are based on your circumstance or yourself, then you don't understand that God is a God of grace. Blessing comes to us not because of who we are, but because of who He is. Jesus told so many stories because He knew this is so hard for us to get and hard for us to understand. He told the stories like the parable of the talents and one guy just doesn't get it. They're given uh, money, they're given things to invest and this one guy thinks, well, the master, he's a hard man. And at the end of that story, he's like, no, no, you didn't get him right. You didn't get the master right. Jesus is like, no, he's not a hard man. Jesus said, you want to pray to God? You need to pray our father. He tells the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son goes away, despises the father, does what he likes, and he eventually comes back. And the son is expecting discipline. The son is expecting harshness. And the father comes running and gives grace. Jesus said, that's what God's like. He sees our sin and he rushes to us with his grace. That's the key, to know God as Father. Listen, Isaac was a man who was overshadowed by Abraham. He's an in-between character in the Bible. And in this chapter, in his life, God teaches him to expect blessing in the famine and blessing despite failure. What is God saying to him? He's saying, I'm not just a God to you. I'm being a father to you. You see, this only makes sense if God is a father who deals with us according to his grace. Isaac was a man overshadowed by his natural father. But even that is overwhelmed by the grace of his heavenly father. And so for us to live like this, to have this posture of faith towards God as a father, we need to know him as the father of grace. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. What is this love? The love of the father. It's expressed 
at the cross where God gave his son for you. See, at the cross, we see these themes come together. At the cross, the Father brings blessing through the adversity. The Son, Jesus, takes the adversity on himself. At the cross, God blesses through failure. Jesus takes our failure on himself and pays the penalty for it, dies for it. It is only by Christ do these things make any sense at all? But it is because of Christ we can know the Father, we can know His grace, and we can expect blessing in every season of life. Let's trust Him today. Let's take hold of Christ today. He is everything to us. And he brings the blessing of God into our lives. Amen.